Father, this morning, grant our church an eternal perspective. May our reality be shaped by your word much more than our experience. Lord, we are finite and fallen, and we only see dimly now. But I pray that even if for a moment this morning we might be transported into your throne room, and through your word be given a similar vision that John had, to hear what he saw and orient our lives around the reality of heaven and hell. In Jesus' name, amen. Many of you have been aware of the email thread and have been kept up to date with things going on with our friend Richard Teal. This week he was in an accident on his motorcycle as he was hit. And as we read the updates and are thanking God that he is still alive, are, are, are weeping and, and hurting with him as thinking about the pain he must be going through and the realization of the hard road to come. As we consider these things, someone who, who comes to this church every Sunday, we are reminded of how fragile life is. We cannot avoid it. We cannot put it off. And so what Satan wants to do and what our flesh wants to do is think that life is essentially comfortable, normal, and secure. And what this reality before us reminds us and what our passage more important, importantly reminds us of is that there is a rock-solid reality on which you must base your story, your life, and your hope, and it is not in this world. That could have been any one of us in a car on the road. It happened to be Richard on a motorcycle, and we weep for him, and we come alongside him, and we lift him up in prayer, and we're thankful that God has granted him more days of life. We hope that we are never in an accident like that, None of us has the next breath guaranteed, not, nor the next day. And so we must pay attention closely to Revelation 21 this morning and to say, what will happen to me? What will my future be like? And how does that inform how I make decisions on a day-to-day basis? I picked Revelation 21. I thought it to be a fitting um, follow-up from the sermon last week. The refrain from Psalm 42 was, remember God. David's soul was ministered to as he was going through tremendous trials. And he, as he remembered God, he said, how is my life going alongside God's story for me? And how can I see how, how God is my author and the perfecter of my faith? And as David found great faith in knowing the one who was carrying him through it and the one who would deliver him, as he remembered God, he was brought into the present peace and comfort of his Lord. Just like we were called to remember God last week, as we consider our own story in our own lives, we are not called to only look back and remember, but we are also called to look forward and behold, to view, to see. Both of those things must be what write our story. And so I, I thought Revelation 21 was a fitting uh, partner to the remembering in the past of God, also looking forward and beholding the realities of heaven. And I thought of no better passage in Revelation 21, 1 through 8, to see what our future would look like. There's a myriad of topics I could have brought before you. I could have told you to evangelize more, to make disciples better, to pray more, to be in your word more. There's a million topics that I could have brought before you this morning. But rather than telling you to do imperatives, What is more powerful for me and for you 
is to see a reality. Once you see that reality, you do not have to be told to do any of those things. You will do them because that is real and you want to live in light of that reality. So as you read Revelation and listen to the words of the Lord this morning, be asking yourself, how is my life fitted to this passage? We'll see that because of the extreme eternal realities of heaven and hell, the work of Christ to deliver us from hell to heaven, because of these things, we must thirst for living waters. We must thirst for living waters. We'll see that flow in three simple things this morning. Three simple flow things that flow through this passage. First, heaven. What does it look like? Who will be there? Second, the alpha and the omega. The one who can get us there. And lastly, we'll look at the warning of hell. Heaven, alpha, omega, and hell. We'll start with heaven this morning. Read with me verses 1 through 4. If you don't have your Bible open already, please open Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. What we're given here, friends, is a picture of what the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem will look like. What we're seeing here is a reflection of the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah, and all throughout the Old Testament, God's people have been looking forward to a day when they wouldn't just have an earthly city of Jerusalem that was protected by walls that could be crumbled and fall down, but they were always looking forward to the new Jerusalem. And in Isaiah 55, Isaiah is given a vision of this same thing. And John repeats and quotes Isaiah, telling the early church, this is the hope we are to have too. The same hope as our ancestors in the Old Testament. As he describes this, it is to bring them hope and comfort in the present because John knew that the early church, those seven churches he was writing to, were in the midst, in the thick of intense persecution. Many of them were dying or would be martyred very soon. And so John is dropping an anchor of truth into these churches for them to hold tightly to and cling on so that whenever the trials and the storms would come ahead, they would have something that would allow them to not let go of Christ. He gives them this vision not to satisfy their curiosity, not to answer the questions, will there be sports or pets in heaven? Those are not necessarily wrong questions to think about, to wonder, and to ask. But more than satisfying our curiosity, he is giving them the reality that God will dwell with them. And if they are dwelling with, will dwell with God one day, they can dwell with him now. And by dwelling with God and knowing that they have him, that is the rock that will keep them through those who want to kill them for their faith. We see here four realities from this picture of verses 1 through 4. First of all, we see that it is new. We see that this new heavens, earth, and Jerusalem are all new. Now, this might be overly simplistic, but I think we have to realize that the earth we're living in now, this first one, it is corrupt. 
And God, if he is to come and dwell with his people forever, for eternity, he cannot do it on this old, corrupt earth. Why is that? Genesis 3.17 reminds us that after Adam and Eve disobeyed God and took the fruit and ate of it, God said, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So not only did sin impact the people, but it impacted this earth as well. You see it in the thorns of, of gardening and farming. You see it in the, the natural disasters we have. We see it in immaterial things, in ideas of love and truth. Those things are broken down. We live in a postmodern era where people no longer believe truth. We see it in the breakdown of, of relationships and the lack of love there is between people and the lack of neighborly love there is even in our own backyard. You don't have to look very long to see that we live in a broken world. And America is relatively peaceful compared to most other parts of the world. So God needs to create a new creation if he is to dwell with man. The second thing we get, the reality of this new heaven and earth, is that it is sinless. We get that from the little hint at the end of verse 1. It says, and the sea was no more. Before you start freaking out and saying, hey, wait, there's going to be no ocean or sea in heaven? What's that all about? What that is pointing to, brothers and sisters, is not that there will no, no longer be any large bodies of water that you'll get to swim in, enjoy, and look at a sunset on a horizon anymore. What this is telling us is that John writing and in the apocalyptic genre, we don't read apocalyptic literature anymore, but what he's doing is, if you read Revelation, it's laden with symbols, and those symbols point to an even greater reality. In the context of Revelation, the sea is the place of the dead in chapter 20, verse 13. The sea is also the place from which the Antichrist came in chapter 13. So if it's the place where the dead go, and the sea is used as a symbol for the place where the Antichrist rises out of, the sea in that time, in that culture, would have been seen as this uncertain place of doom where people go out to sea, they never come back, they die. In contrast, heaven in, in the new heavens and new earth, there will be nothing that is dangerous about it anymore. Nothing that is, um, that is seemingly full of um, winds and gales and can toss you about and destroy you anymore. This place of death, the place of sin where the Antichrist is from, will be no longer. So when it says the sea is no more, don't hear that you will no longer be able to enjoy a large body of water, but hear that all evil and sin will be cast out of this new place. God must have a sinless reality if he is to dwell in his holy glory with us. That should be one of the things that we prize most about heaven, is that sin will be there, won't be there any longer. More important than the things we'll enjoy or the people we'll be with is the reality that we'll be able to come before the presence of God and be able to see him as he is and be able to praise him without having temptations and distractions in our own heart. We'll be able to finally have brothers and sisters that we talk to without any sense of competition, without any sense of misunderstanding or, or, or pride. None of that will be there, but it will be a sinless reality. The next thing we realize from this passage is that this is a heavenly city, a new Jerusalem that is coming down to earth. There are vast implications for that. A few of them, it will be a city. 
if any of you have tried to travel to San Francisco recently, you might not like the city very much. It's hard to get in there. There's hard parking. There's, there's, it's dirty a lot of times. There's danger. Sue was telling us this week, walking down a back alley, you might run into some people who, who could hurt you. The city, many of us think of as, as this place of, of danger. But what you, need to be, what you need to realize is that the city God has in mind is nothing like that. Imagine San Francisco with all of its natural beauty and all of the resources there, but minus any sin. Take out all the brokenness, and then you might get a small glimpse of what the city might be like. The reality that you dwell in close proximity with others and with God, and all of the resources are there, and you see people from every tribe, tongue, and culture all mingled together in beautiful worship of the king, that will be a glorious thing. And it won't just be a city, but as the passage Bill read for our, our prayer for missions, the gates will be open to that city, and so we don't have to feel danger anymore. Kings from various nations will be able to come and go out of those gates, and so we'll be able to leave the, the nucleus of the city and go explore mountains, to go explore different places, and to see things we haven't before. So for those of you who love the countryside, for those of you who love wide open spaces, don't worry, there is that there for you too in heaven. It is a city, but there is also vastness in, in God's new creation. But more importantly than the, than the structure in the walls, we need to see that Jerusalem was always a city, but it was also used as a, a synonym for God's people. If you remember reading through the book of Revelation before, oftentimes God says, refers to Babylon. Babylon, this city of evil. And when he refers to Babylon, it's not just the city proper, but he's referring to the people in the city, those who actually do wicked in Babylon. So contrasting that to Jerusalem, whenever God says Jerusalem, like when he says Israel, oftentimes that's not just the place, but it's the people in that place as well. And so if you say, oh, well, this makes sense then. If the new Jerusalem is coming down as a bride adorned for her husband, oh, that starts to click for us. That Jerusalem isn't just the, the walls and the infrastructure of the city, but it's the people of God, you and I, if we believe in Jesus, that will be coming down as a bride prepared for her husband Christ. So, when you think New Jerusalem, think people first. When you think heaven, think people-centric, the people that we will be with in the person of Christ that we will be worshiping. That is what we are given. And we know this example from Ephesians 5. Husbands are to love the their wives as Christ loved the church and gave his, himself up for her. The church, this is to be the bride adorned for her husband. And that idea of adorning, we see it, we saw it with Ashin and Marina's wedding. The white dress that is put on represents purity. So too, you and I will be sinless and spotless one day in heaven. And we are to work toward that end. Isn't that a glorious picture? That we, as a local church, joined with all the other true believers, will be adorned will be completely washed free of all sin and will be brought down to her husband. Now, for you guys out there who have a hard time picturing the bridal imagery, don't get caught up so much <coughs> in the bride being a feminine concept. But remember that a wedding was the uniting of two different parties. It is the closest bond of intimacy and, and relational unity that we have this side of heaven. And so as a body, as Christians... And as men, if you have a struggle with that, 
remind yourself that this is the relationship, the final relationship you were created for. And so you can look forward to coming to meet Jesus, the, the great husband who will know you and love you and will be the best friend that you never had this side of earth. We'll be better than our spouses. We'll be better than the closest sibling or parent we had growing up. That is what we can long for. Finally, we see from this picture that the centerpiece of this scene is that God will dwell with us and we will dwell with him. This is a fulfillment of Exodus 25.8 and John 1.14. Exodus 25.8 says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And then that line goes all throughout the Old Testament up into the New when Jesus comes to earth. In John 1.14 we read, John writes that the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among people so that they saw his glory. If you were present during the Biblical Theology Sunday seminar when Kirk walked through how God dwells with his people, you saw that God from the very beginning had a desire to dwell in a garden with his people. That paradise was lost, and then God throughout history is looking to bring his people back. He does that through a tent, through a tabernacle, through a temple. And then he sends his own son into the world to dwell with his people. God wants his people back. He wants you and I to be able to dwell in a sinless perfection with him. So we see here that the centerpiece of heaven in verse 3 is that God himself will be with us as our God. That is such a beautiful picture. And what that reminds us is that the whole story of the line of scripture, God succeeds. That it culminates in heaven and that God has not failed whatsoever. That God will have his people, and he will succeed in his purposes. That everything we're doing now as a local church, this, this assembly we have at Cambrian Park this morning, the presence of God being, being sensed as his word is being preached and as we meet to pray, this is a shadow, a temporary structure of what we will realize when we'll be able to fully dwell with God in sinless unity. So, when we dwell with him, we say, what will that dwelling look like? Well, we know for certain that we will be reigning with him, that we will be singing to God, that we will be working, that he'll give us jobs to do, and that we will also rest, that it will be a perfect place of shalom. We are not given all the specifics in scripture, but that's okay. I think God purposely doesn't do that because he wants us to not lose focus of the centerpiece, and that is being with him. We will, yes, likely play, likely learn, likely explore in heaven. We can draw inferences through scripture, but our focus must be on God himself, the fact that we get to dwell with him. God wants us to see that he should be our prize. And even as we look forward to it, as the church in the, in the seven churches in Revelation should have realized, as we should realize that we are to dwell with God now. If we get to dwell with him one day in heaven, we should say, how can I dwell with you and get as closest to you as possible now in this life? We do that through prayer and through meditation upon his word and through gathering in communities like this. We get to dwell with God now. And so we should have an, an increased expectation of what this will be like in a growing desire and appetite to dwell with God now. God not only wants us to behold what will, heaven will look like, but he wants us to feel 
to feel the beautiful implications of heaven. Look at verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There will be no more mourning, crying, pain, for those things have passed away. Sin is the root of all these problems, and it has been thrown into the lake of fire. Sin will be no more, and his children will no longer experience the effects of sin. There will no more be tears. He will wipe them away as a parent wipes away the tears of their child. Tenderly, God will see all of the things we've lost in this life, all of the hurt, all of your pain, and he will wipe that away. And he will restore all of that and bring you into his presence where you can see, oh, that all makes sense now. I now know why I lost that loved one. I I I now know why I felt that hurt at that point. He will wipe those tears away. He will also wipe away those tears of regret All those times that we see in our lives that we have sinned against the most holy one and effectively spit in the face of this loving father, we will weep at all of the times we we trampled upon his glory and his beauty, the one who has only done good for us. Anytime we've sinned, we will also have those tears of regret that are wiped away completely. And he'll say, there is no more guilt and shame in this place, only a place of love and forgiveness. I have done away with that. What a beautiful picture we have. He wants us to feel that now. No death, mourning, or crying. This week, Gwen asked me, she said, Dad, where's Miss Mary? And and that was the first time that she had been asking about her um, for a while now. And Yasmin and I were talking, is this the good time? Yeah, we think it is a right time. We think that she's now kind of at a place where she's able to listen. And so we explained to her that Miss Mary had died and that we miss her very much and that she won't, we won't be seeing her at church anymore, but that Miss Mary will be is right now with Jesus and that she is happy and that she is praising God. And we said, what do you think about that, Gwen? And she said, you know, I'm a little sad and I'll miss her, but, but I'm happy. I'm happy that she's praising Jesus right now. I'm happy that she's with him. And then she went and she, she has a little notebook and she got it and she drew a picture of Miss Mary in it. And she doesn't know how to write yet, but she like drew some little scribbles. And we said, Gwen, what are you writing? And she said, Miss Mary, please come back. We said, Gwen, that's so sweet of you. We, we wish she was still here with us now and it's a right for you to miss her. Miss Mary, she, she's not going to be coming back to earth, but she's in a much better place. She's, she's with Christ because she believed in him, and she trusted in him with her life, and you can be there and see her one day too, Gwen, if you trust in Jesus. That little exchange that I had this week with Gwen was just a reminder that anyone who ever tells you that death is just a natural part of life is lying to you, that it is just part of the circle of life. That's a lie. My four-year-old should not have to be asking these questions or feeling the sadness over, over a loved one that she knew, a family member in church. It reminded me that, that there, it, there should be a, a deep longing and, and pain that comes from the reality that this is not how it ought to be. But then there's the beautiful reality that through Christ and through trusting in him alone, I can give Gwen the good news that if I was an atheist dad or if I was of a different religion, I couldn't give her that good news. I would have to give her some sort of cold comfort or wishful thinking. 
but in Christ we can have, we can feel the tragedy of death and know that that's not how God designed it in the first place. That's not how it's supposed to be, and yet we can ultimately live victorious this side of the cross. Amen? So it is not a part of life. There will be the promise that there's no more pain either. Many of us are going through very various physical pains right now. Many of us are dealing with various emotional pains. Not all of us have perfect relationships with our siblings or parents. Not all of us have perfect relationships with maybe those who were once inside this church. We feel the pain of living in this fallen world. Like I, like I said earlier, our friend Richard is in immense pain right now. But the good news that, that God brings to us in his word is that there's one day that there will be pain no more. That this life is, is but a breath, is but a vapor. But our ultimate true reality is that there will be no more pain. And so we have to keep this picture of Revelation 21 ever before us if we are to process the pain that we face, both, both physical, emotional, and spiritual now, and the hope that we can have to keep walking through that pain and suffering for the case of Christ. We see that if we hope in the eternal, and we say that, Christ can actually bring me his protection and his security now, it will enable us both to take risks for the kingdom of God, to, to live the great, out the Great Commission, which is essentially a life of risk. It's putting yourself out there. Like we heard in 2 Timothy in the sermons that those who wish to live a godly life and follow Christ will be persecuted. You can live that life if you keep this in mind, that there will be no more pain. And that in Christ right now, <coughs> that pain does not have to have the sharp sting that it does without him. In addition, much of the pain we feel is not what's coming from the outside, but it is from within. It is pain that we feel from being vulnerable in relationships within the body of Christ. So if we keep this in perspective that there will be no more pain one day, then that enables us to be vulnerable and to open up and, and to extend a level of trust in relationships with those within the church as well, knowing that if we get hurt, if we are misunderstood, if people leave, it is still worth it to extend that love, to be vulnerable, because we know that one day there will be no more pain. So it is worth the risk now, and if Christ has our hearts and it's secure in his hands, then ultimately we are secure and we can process that, and we don't have to feel the full effects of that pain. It is real, but it is not what is the last word. The last word is what will be in heaven for us. That is where our hope is. So not only does Christ provide us that hope and that confidence of what our true reality will be one day, but he also tells us that it's only through him that we can reach this place of heaven. All of the beauties and glories we see in verses 1 through 4 can only be achieved, can only be reached through Christ. The second point is, who is this Alpha and Omega? Read with me verses 5 through 7. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Christ is speaking to John from the throne. He's talking about his ongoing work. His work will continue. His work will be complete. 
and he tells us about how we can be beneficiaries and recipients of his work. How is Christ's work ongoing? You see in verse 5 the phrase, I am making all things new. Realize that that is different than him saying, I will make all things new, or I have made all things new. Saying, I am making all things new implies an ongoing action. Christ's creativity in heaven will never be exhausted, brothers and sisters. That even though when we are glorified and we reach heaven, we will be in a perfectly sinless state, and we will see clearly for the first time, and we will have everything we ever longed for, in heaven, it is not a static reality. It is not something that is, that is cold, boring, or tired. But there will be continual creation and innovation by Christ in heaven. That new facets of God will ever be revealed before us. There will be new ways that we are called to reign and renovate the, the new heavens and the new earth. He will use your gifts, your creativity, and your talents to, to work alongside him. To, to make sure that this new heaven and new earth is operating the way he wants it. And so we remember here that heaven is something that is not a, a disembodied place where we're floating around, but it is a, a physical place where we will have resurrected bodies and he will use us to work with our hands, feet, and intellects in incorruptible flesh. And it is something that he will be making and he'll call you and I to join with him in that innovation, in that making in that learning of new things. And that's exciting. That's exciting to think that, that that will continue in heaven. So Christ's work is ongoing. Additionally, in verse 6, we're told that his work is done. He literally says, it is done. What is done? Christ's upholding and orchestrating of all of human history is finally complete here. We know that through Christ, all things, seen and unseen, were created. <clears throat> we also know from Colossians 1 that he upholds this world by, by the word of his power. That, that everything that is happening now, Christ is orchestrating every detail for his glory. Finally, history will come to a complete. Even the evil that happens in this world will only act as the black backdrop to God's beautiful, diamond-like glory that we'll see even clearer against that back, black, black backdrop in heaven. That every, every loose thread, every, every temptation we have to blame God or to say, why would you allow this evil? That will come to the perfect conclusion. He will bring it to an end. And his work will be done of history. That one day it will be complete and he will fulfill his purpose. Every question that we have will we'll finally have a, have a satisfying conclusion and we will see how it brings our creator glory. We see here that, that it is complete and he, himself refer, he refers to himself as the Alpha and the Omega, reminding us that essentially part of his nature is that he is the Alpha, the first letter of the Greek alphabet. He is the beginning he also is the end. He is the purpose for which all of us were created now. The purpose for which all of history is headed. He is the Alpha and the Omega. The operative question then for us is, is Christ your Alpha and Omega? He is the Alpha Omega, Alpha and Omega. That's unquestioned. 
but is he yours functionally in your life? Is he your alpha in your beginning in that you rest in Christ as your identity? You say, I am worthy. My life counts. I will keep on living this life because Christ is the one who made me. And if you're a Christian, he is the one who has remade you. Your worth is set and defined by the alpha, Christ himself. That is what ultimately defines who you are. Are you resting in that, that reality that your identity is secure? Is Christ also functionally, ask yourself, is he functionally your omega? Is he your end? This morning when you woke up, did you say, I'm going to go to the church this morning because I want to for the purpose of worshiping Christ. I, I want to bring my Savior and my King glory. Are not just your, your short-term goals, like happened this morning, but your long-term goals. Do you say that my life, I want every aspect of it to become more and more in line with Christ's purposes and the explicit word of God in greater obedience to him so that everything I'm doing is pointing more clearly to the Savior that what drives your ambitions and your dreams is Christ himself. I pray that that's so. I pray that you are able to say, not that just he is the Alpha and the Omega, but he is your Alpha and Omega, that he is functionally your beginning and end. If we are honest, we realize that we all fail daily at acknowledging this, that our hope is often not in dwelling with God one day. We see this in our prayerlessness we understand this in our, our unfaithfulness. Every time we sin, what we're saying is that Christ is not actually my omega, but I have an, another end, another purpose, another ambition that is outside of the will of God. Every time that we go through life without fixing our mind on heaven, every day that we, that we go and we don't think about what our end will be and allow that picture to inform our story, we are saying that these glorious, amazing, infinite realities are not really true. Because if you thought and really believed they were true, it would prevent you from sinning. So every time we sin, we're agreeing with Satan that heaven isn't that glorious. In fact, it, doesn't, it may not exist at all when that faithlessness creeps in. Every time we think, I have to do this or that, or work a little bit harder, or say this thing, to maintain my image and my identity as a part of a group, as, as seen by my peers. I have to, to work for who I am, and that's a tireless struggle. Every time we try to find our identity outside of resting in what Christ has said about us, what we're doing is we're belittling the alpha. We're belittling our creator and sustainer. So as a church, we come humbly in confession and repentance before God, we say, God, we have not acknowledged you as our Alpha and Omega. And God, we actually have a very little view of heaven. How are you a holy God? How are you to dwell with us? We are, we are unfit for heaven. We are unfit to dwell within the, the blazing glory of your presence. We think, what a nice thought that the that the sun won't need to shine. We won't need the light of the sun, but the light of the Father will shine for us. Yes, that is a nice thought. But it is also a terrifying thought because however hot the sun is, 
And however unapproachable the sun is, we can't even look at it. The glory of God is infinitely more than the sun. Now, when we take our sin and we, and we try to hold it up even an inch closer to that blazing glory, we say, uh-oh, we need a Savior. Uh-oh, I fall short and I am unfit for this heavenly place where God's glory will shine even brighter than the sun. We see here that we, by our own works and on our own strength, are utterly unfit for heaven. So then how can we attain this? How can the the church in Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia back then when John was writing, how can the church of Cambrian Park have a hope to be in heaven one day? How can we be fit? Well, we're given the answer from the Alpha and the Omega himself at the end of verse 6. We are given the good news that it is those who thirst for the spring of water of life without payment. It is those who thirst that can inherit heaven. The paradox of the gospel, brothers and sisters, it is not those who are satisfied. It is not those who think that they are good people in all right and essentially moral. It is not those who will inherit the kingdom of heaven, but it is those who say, I thirst I recognize that I am deficient. I am needy. I am sick. I need to drink of the water because I don't have that water myself. It is through expressing our, our, our humility and our need for a Savior that we can be saved and have assurance for heaven. Not in saying that I've got it all together, that my life is satisfied and perfect. It is not those who think that they are well who will inherit the kingdom of heaven is those who realize that they need the great physician. That is how we can get in, brothers and sisters, because it says here that those who thirst can drink of the living water without payment. How is it that we can just drink freely of this forgiveness without payment? It's because Christ paid it with his lifeblood for us. That he went ahead of us and what Christ did is Christ always hoped for heaven. That, that Christ was the one who fixed his hope completely on the new Jerusalem. That he never sinned. He never doubted God. He dwelt with God perfectly. He was the dwelling of God. And yet, on the cross, Christ became infinitely thirsty. He experienced our hell. And he lost the loving presence of God. He lost this picture of heaven. As the nails pierced through his feet and his hands, and as the crown of thorns was placed on his head, the physical pain came nowhere near to the spiritual and emotional pain he felt from, from saying, I thirst on the cross. He, he, he felt so parched of the, the river of life, the stream of water he knew of being at per, in perfect communion with the Father, he willingly lost it for us so that we could come to the living water, sinners unfit for heaven, and to say, I can drink deeply if I would only come humbly admitting my need. Christ not, didn't stay on the cross. He died, but then he rose again three days later showing that his payment was effective and in full, 
And he rose from the grave victoriously, showing that death would one day be no longer, that this first earth would pass away, and that Satan no longer had sway over God's children. He rose from the dead, and then he ascended at the right hand of the Father in physical, resurrected form, at the right hand of the Father, dwelling in heaven, in the intermediate heaven, so that he could reign forever and make sure that he is making things all things new, making sure that history comes to a completion, that you and I are born, created, and fulfilling our purpose of bringing him honor and glory before we, before we reach heaven. He ascended into heaven so that he could await the day that he comes back for his bride. Christ did that so that we could be forgiven. So then, brothers and sisters, the question is, are you thirsty? Are you someone who says, God, I'm not satisfied for where I'm at spiritually, but God, I I need you more and more every day. God, I don't think I have all of your word together and and have it all known in my heart where I'm good, but God, I want to grow. God, I'm thirsty. I want to know more of you. I want to have more of your presence in my life. It is that thirst that is characteristic of those who have truly placed their faith in Christ. Now, the way you see that over the long run, the way you see if that thirst is authentic and that you are truly saved and have real faith is if you conquer. In verse 7, it says, the one who conquers will have this heritage. The conquering or overcoming would have been a very real thing for those in the early church. They would have been feeling the effects of those wishing to take their faith away from them, wishing to have them denounce their faith for emperor worship, and looking for them to, to, to no longer follow this, this one who competed with Caesar. For us, we have very different pressures, not, not as much the physical persecution, but the spiritual persecution of, of the pressure of fitting in, the pressure of various social, social circles. We are, are daily tempted to, to give in to the temptations of this world, to, to, to stop Christianity and to give up. But we're told here that those who truly thirst, they can be seen by conquering or overcoming this world. Now, the conquerors and overcomers are not those who tell you how bold they are or how knowledgeable they are, but they are those who humbly, confidently have trust in the truth of Christ and remain thirsty. The overcomers are not the, these people that are super Christians or, or pastors or, or professionals, but they are those who simply say, I will daily use the mundane means of grace to trust in Christ more and to overcome the, 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 the little trials, the little temptations, the little things that wish to get me off the narrow path. And it is those who persevere to the end that will be saved. So the way you show and prove that, that, that you have been given a new heart, that your, your faith is real and that you are truly thirsty, is that if you have tasted that living water, it can never go away. And God will hold you and allow you to overcome the world. By overcoming, you will show that you have indeed drank from the living water. So then the question for us is, does this describe you? Are you one who is currently overcoming Do you see yourself fighting against the temptations and trials of this world? Or do you have a hard time seeing yourself in this picture? Or just to be honest, have you come this morning and 
and you, you don't even identify with Christ. You're not a Christian. If that is the case, then you are always welcome here at this church. I'm so glad you came, even if you're not certain that this is you or if you don't claim Christianity. I'm, you're always welcome here to hear the word of God to come. Thank you for coming. But you are here to hear the word of God. And I want to warn you today with this passage that you are called, if you are uncertain that you have truly drank from the living water and trusted in Christ, that today you are to turn away from your sin and to turn to Christ, to place your faith in him, to drink from the living water so that you can have hope in heaven, knowing that you can inherit heaven no other way but through him. That this day, trust in Christ, repent, and you know that, that today you can have assurance of that salvation. The opposite, the contrast of this that we'll see right now is so horrendous that there's no other way around it. That I cannot fathom the thought of anyone being uncertain of this and continuing their life with not, without having the hope of heaven. Trust in Christ today if you have not. Now for many of you who I know are my brothers and sisters, I praise God for his work that you have drank deeply from those wells. I thank God for your assurance of salvation. Even if you are absolutely certain, without a doubt, that you are his, we all still need to hear the warning of verse 8 in hell. Read with me the, the warning here in verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This list is the list of apostates. So what this list is, is not those outside the church, but this is a list of those who had spent much time within the church and yet had fallen away. We need to have the sober reality to say that this could be those within the church. This could be me, apart from the grace of Christ. That these, these people are those who at one time had tasted the fellowship, but have now given in to the trials. The list here is, is pretty self-explanatory, so I won't delve deeply into all of these things, but just quickly going over each of them. The cowardly are those who fear man and are not willing to stand up and have the hard conversations with those they know need to hear Christ. The faithless are those who know the word in their minds but don't truly believe it in their hearts. Those who do not believe that Christ's salvation is sufficient but they need other saviors or other things to define them. They are those who, who want the benefits of Christianity but will not persevere to the end that those who, who do not trust in Christ as the Lord of their life. The detestable are those who engage in, in immoral behavior of all kinds. And this is not only detestable or vile behavior that is seen, but it also is also those who entertain and are okay with their thought life being characterized by immorality. The murderers here are not only those who have committed homicide, but those, as, in, as 1 John reminds us, that have not loved the brothers. Those who, who see needs around them and yet willingly close their heart to the needs of brothers and sisters and effectively hate them. Those who harbor hatred and anger in their hearts 
in an unrepentant way are murderers who will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. The sexually immoral are those, as we know, who allow lust to reign in their minds, that don't cast away those, those wicked thoughts, but that relish in and continue to allow sins to brew unconfessed. Sorcerers are those who, who seek a, a means of spirituality and power in their lives outside of the prescribed means of reading scripture and prayer. Without, they want to tap into the spiritual by, by avoiding God. They want to dabble in the demonic, thinking that they will get power and sometimes feeling a sense of power. But ultimately, those who in their pride think that I can be the one in control of this power when really they're not. The idolaters are those who practiced syncretism. Those who wanted to have Christ on one hand, but wanted to continue to worship idols on the other. In their culture, you could see the idols with your eyes. In our culture, idolaters are those who are shaped and swayed and ambitious more for the things that this culture has for us than for the cause of Christ. And finally, liars. Liars are those who ultimately do not want to be exposed, but want others to fit in with their version of reality because they don't want to submit to God. Liars dangerously may not even know that they are liars, but might be self-deceived. Those who are living a lie refuse to come underneath the truth of the word of God and subject themselves to Jesus and Christ himself, who is the truth. So brothers and sisters, as you meditate upon these lies and upon these characteristics of those who will be cast into the lake of fire, examine yourself. Note that these are characteristic things of these people, and they're also unrepented of. All of us still have indwelling sin. And so we all have shades of one or two or many of these likely still indwelling in our lives. Likely, many of us are cowardly towards those who we know we need to be more bold with. Likely, one, we can think of times where in the past month, we have lied or, or said something to save face or twisted truth. The key here is that those who hold on to these sins and allow them to define them are those who will ultimately have their portion in the lake of fire. So allow this list to, to, to warn you and to say that I cannot allow these to fester, but I need to, to repent of them today. I cannot allow these things to go unconfessed. Repentance is a hard and sometimes embarrassing road, but it always leads to freedom. And so if any of these things, are, the Holy Spirit is pricking you of any of these things, confess them today, repent of them, and be free of any of these sins so that they do not grow in your life and prove that you are no longer really drinking of the living water. The final place for these people, in contrast to the beauty in peace of heaven is the opposite. It is conscious, eternal torment in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And while I take no pleasure whatsoever 
at telling you about this or reading this verse or the idea that anyone would ever go there. What I like is irrelevant. We approach the Bible as it says here, write this down, these words are trustworthy and true. The word of God is true, and so we come to the word accepting it as truth, knowing that it is, and shaping our lives around it. So we must live with this reality in view that God could have had John finish this passage with just the beauties of heaven. But you say, why did he finish this thought off? Why did he tack verse 8 onto this beautiful picture of heaven? Why did he warn us of hell? And the reality is because he wants us to live in light of the eternal state of ourselves and of those around us who are lost. He also wants those within the church to be rightly warned, to not be false professors anymore, but he wants the false professors to come to true repentance. And this is what this warning is used for. We see that this conscious eternal torment, this fire and sulfur, is forever. Revelation 14, 10 through 11, gives us an even clearer picture of hell. It says that those will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. If any of you have ever been cooking on a stovetop and even touched your finger for one second on a hot pan, you know how bad burning feels. There is symbolic imagery in Revelation to show us that not only will there very likely be physical burning taking place, but there is extreme spiritual and emotional realities here of torment that a physical burning cannot, cannot even start to touch. I want this to sit. I want this to have its proper weight. I want this to wake us up. I needed to be woken up by this reality this week. There's people in my life I can think of that, that, I, that I've shared the gospel with, but I've, it's been a long time since I've followed up with them. There's people in my life who I am not okay with them facing this eternal torment, and neither should you. Augustine tells us about urgency. He says, God has offered forgiveness for your repentance, but not tomorrow for your procrastination. Augustine says that he has offered forgiveness for your repentance, but not tomorrow for your procrastination. And so may these eternal realities cut through your comfortable Christianity and my comfortable Christianity, and may they awaken us to a, a, a degree of boldness that we haven't faced before. As I said in my introduction, I don't have to tell any of you to read your Bible. I don't have to tell any of you to evangelize. What I want you to do is behold heaven and hell. See its glories. See hell's torments. Think about those who you love, who are eternal beings, and allow the Holy Spirit to prompt you and lead you how you ought to obey his word. How should we live our daily lives? Well, for Christians, there should be immeasurable hope and joy in light of heaven. We are called to, to daily behold this heaven so that we are building a strong shelter, getting ready for the storm. The same way the early church was to be prepared for the storm of persecution that's to come, 
the more and more we think about the beauty of heaven and the, the Alpha and the Omega that we'll be there to worship, the more our faith grows, the more we'll be prepared when the trial, a trial that comes into your life that is worse than anything you've ever faced, suffering that you couldn't imagine, when that comes and that storm blows, hopefully you'll have that anchor already prepared to hold on to. So may this morning be a preparation of seeing that anchor and holding tighter onto it. Also, there should be an intense sense of responsibility for the lost. Ask and pray today, God, who do you want me to follow up with? Now you might say, Kurt, should I live in a frenzied way? Should, should I allow these things to cause me to be just living in a constant state of, of, of hyper fear or, or, or hyper joy? That's just not how life looks, Kurt. I have bills to pay. I have groceries to get. I have, I have a deadline to meet at work. This is just not real, Kurt. How, how, do, how do you expect me to actually live with these things? So what I want you to see these realities as is the difference between a daily meal in prepping for a natural disaster or doomsday to come. What I mean by that is if you think of a doomsday prepper, you think of someone who says, one day that big earthquake is going to hit. So I better stockpile all the canned food, bottled water, and peanut butter in my pantry and in my, my garage as I possibly can. Now those doomsday preppers, and if you think of yourself, many of you aren't like that. You say, well, you know, maybe we're due for an earthquake here in the Bay Area. Maybe we are. But that earthquake isn't so real to me that it actually motivates me to go out and buy a thousand cans of peanut butter. But I imagine all of you either ate dinner last night or ate breakfast this morning. Why did you do that? Because the reality of hunger was felt, and you knew that if you ate breakfast this morning, that you had a day ahead of you that you needed energy for. And this day that you were living in was so vivid and real to you, and your hunger was so vivid and real that you could do nothing other than eat breakfast. So I'm not calling you to be those wide-eyed, fanatical doomsday preppers who say maybe the earthquake will hit one day, but I'm calling you to be the Christians that say heaven and hell will come. Therefore, eat. Therefore, prepare yourself, not in a frenzied, wild way, but in a way that eats of the word of God, that believes that Christ and his word is true, and that prepares yourself to live out these eternal realities on the daily basis, knowing that the conversation you could have when you go home this afternoon, it could impact where someone spends this eternity. Now, if you view it as that, that daily eating, then you should have urgency, but that urgency should be paired with, with a humble constancy of the diet of the means of grace and the word of God. So allow these things to cut through and have the right effect that you might be a Christian whose story is not only shaped by remembering God in the past, but is beholding him in the end as well. Let's pray. Father, my words fail. This sermon is insufficient. And yet we know that your word is true Your word is a lamp to our feet. 
Your word is, is profitable and perfect at training men and women of God in righteousness. And so I pray that Revelation 21, 1 through 8 would stick on the back of our eyelids and that we would allow this vision of heaven to bring more comfort and joy than we've ever experienced, especially in the hard, difficult days, especially when we feel pain. <coughs> I pray as well, God, that you would allow this characteristic of, of, those, who are, of those who are destined for hell to not, to not be easily painted over, but I pray that, Father, we would repent of any faithlessness or cowardliness, or sexual immorality in our, in our own lives. And I pray that we would call those who we know to repent. Father, I pray that these things would really be real to us, as real as our hunger was this morning. Thank you again that you are the one who is orchestrating history and bringing it to a satisfying conclusion. That even when we are faithless, God, even when we sin, God, you can even redeem that to make sure that you get glory and your purposes are fulfilled. Help us to not engage in that sin, but help us to be as faithful as possible. In Jesus' name, amen.